Big gates swing on little hinges. You all knew that, didn't you? All you need to do is look at a door. And you can see along the side there's usually three hinges. Not that big. And if you took all of them collectively, in contrast to the size of the door, you'd find that those hinges comprise a very small part of that size of that door. And especially the weight of the door. The doors to our building today are steel doors, and they're heavy. Three hinges to a door. Big gates swing on little hinges. Some of us who have a farm background, we recognize that, don't we? The big gates of the, of the farm, small hinges, sometimes only two hinges on them, on the post. And a long, large gate swings on it. Well, I didn't bring that up just to give a description of door hardware or farm gates. It also describes life, doesn't it? Big gates swing on little hinges. And you can think back in your lives to times when what seemed like a small decision, a small occurrence in life, a small business transaction, had significant impact and results and consequences. Sometimes for good, sometimes not so good. Little things can have big consequences. We see it in the history of Israel. We have studied over the past few weeks several different events in the history of Israel. We come to a time of, in the history of Israel when little decisions had long-lasting, severe consequences upon their history. When they first came into the Promised Land, God was with them. They conquered their enemies and they took over the land. And they saw God work and they saw Him perform miraculous deeds on their behalf. They had seen it way back in Egypt and how God had protected them from the plagues that He brought upon the Egyptians. And then they saw His power as He took them across the Red Sea and through the wilderness and brought them into the Promised Land. And yet we come to occasion that we find recorded in the book of Judges a time when little decisions had severe, long-lasting, significant consequences upon the nation of Israel. We read in Judges 1, verses 1 and 2, it says that Joshua died. Not too unexpected. He was 110 years old. Time to die. Joshua died. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us 
against the Canaanites to fight against them the Lord said Judah shall go up behold I have given the land into his hand they had no replacement for Joshua when Moses died God identified Joshua to take his place Joshua led them into the promised land and through many victorious battles but it came time for Joshua to die and he died we don't see anyone assuming the leadership position and role after Joshua but the people had learned by observation and by experience to call upon the Lord they had observed it with Moses they had observed it with Joshua and so they inquired of the Lord Lord what do we do Joshua our leader is gone we have no one to take his place what shall we do and God said to them Judah will lead you now that wasn't one man Judah the tribe of Judah the generations after Judah the son of Jacob his children, his offspring they would lead you into battle and we find as you would read through the next few verses if you read through the scriptures starting in verse number 3 down through verse number 26 you would find the Lord with Israel I didn't print that out for you I thought it would take up too much space I'll just summarize it for you very quickly they encountered 10 battles and they won all 10 of them the Lord was with them they had 10 battles they had 10 victories they knew the presence again of God with them God helping them God granting them victory as he had promised as he had promised to Moses as he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob I will give that land to you and he promised it to Moses he promised it to Joshua he said wherever your foot shall trot I'll give you that land and here after the death of Joshua they experienced again the promise of God on their behalf granting them victory after victory after victory and they saw God work and they trusted God and they believed him they obeyed him and God proved to them once again his faithfulness to his promise his power his omnipotence overcoming the enemies that they faced his grace his kindness on their behalf why them? because he chose them because he loved them the scriptures tell us we also find described for us God's justice against sin he had said that he would drive out the Canaanites and the occupants in this land and he told us why he would drive them out he didn't drive them out because of some ethnic cleansing as some in our day would describe it no he drove them out and he brought Israel in to drive them out because of their sin and their rebellion against God and their refusal to bow and to worship before God the creator and so we see God's justice displayed as the children of Israel overcome the inhabitants of the land of Canaan that God gave to his children now I said in those verses 3 to 27 there were 10 victories and there were 
However, one of them was tarnished. One of the victories was tarnished because it wasn't a complete victory. It was a partial victory. And we find it described for us in verse number 19, the second item on your list of references. It says, The Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. What? You mean God couldn't overcome chariots of iron? Was God feeble? Was God somehow unable to drive away chariots of iron? He could defeat individuals who simply had helmets and shields and spears. God was okay there, but he couldn't drive out the chariots of iron? Is that what it is describing for us? Is there something else at play here? God had told the children of Israel through Joshua, his leader, and you can find it recorded in Joshua chapter 17, verse number 18. He said, when you come down from the mountains to encounter those in the plains, don't be afraid. God will enable you to destroy the chariots of iron. What happened? What happened? How come they could not defeat the chariots of iron? They didn't believe God. They didn't believe God. They failed to trust Him all throughout their battles. They had trusted God to provide for them the victory. And in these recorded in those verses, God enabled them once again as they trusted Him to defeat the enemies, to overcome them. And all of a sudden they encounter chariots of iron and oh my goodness what are we going to do and their hearts melted and they failed to believe and trust God to defeat even the chariots of iron that seemed like an impossible foe after all they'd seen the walls of Jericho fall they'd seen God work on their behalf on numerous battles and occasions previously chariots of iron presented no problem to God they just failed to believe him big gates swing on little hinges the rest of this first chapter and the rest of the book of Judges describes for us the severe consequences that Israel suffered because they failed to believe God We'll read verses 27 to 36. And notice as we go through the description provided for us. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them. 
but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acho, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or of Axib, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, and Ijalon, and in Shalib, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Acherim, from Selah, and upward. Did you notice some things in those verses as I read them to you? No mention of the Lord. No mention of God. No mention of His presence. No mention of His intervention on their behalf. Not one occasion. Did you notice a second thing? Did you notice not one of them were victorious? Not one of them experienced victory? Did you notice a third thing? They assimilated together. They assimilated together. If we go back and look at the beginning of it all, we find that doubt led to disobedience. God said, drive them out. Destroy them. Don't make them slaves. Don't let them live in the land amongst you. Don't cooperate with them. Drive them out. Destroy them utterly. Leave nothing left. Their doubt drove them to disobedience. Their disobedience brought decline. Decline brought desertion from God God's presence not displayed on their behalf oh it seemed like such a little thing at the time oh we'll just let this little tribe down here we'll let them be that's not a big territory down there after all we we do have the, the mountains and we'll let them have that little plot of land down there. Maybe if we, maybe we'll curry their favor a little bit by letting them have that little plot of land down there, and they'll cooperate with us. No doubt, disobedience, defeat, decline, desertion. Big gates swing on little hinges. And as we look back over these verses, we see that as long as the children of Israel believed and trusted in God and obeyed Him, God manifested Himself to them and on their behalf. They experienced victory over their enemies and over sin and evil. And they knew God's presence fellowshipping among them, displayed mightily on their behalf. 
when they doubted God, questioned Him, thought their ideas superior to His, they suffered severely. And the justice that God brought upon the children in the land of Canaan, the enemies of God who had sinned against them, now His justice began to reveal itself against the children of Israel. Because they sinned. And God had warned them, If you fail to obey me, I will become your enemy. He said, Oh, I don't know about you, but I don't want God as my enemy. I can't even stand for myself, let alone resist God and fight against Him. Why do you think God moved upon the author? Theologians believe it was Samuel to write this record that we see in the book of Judges, especially this section as we've examined this morning? God wanted to reveal to the ages, not just the children of Israel, as they read the book, but others who would follow and read the record. How God would bless those who believe and obey. And how he would judge severely those who doubt and disobey. He wanted us to see also the character and nature of God. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. He wants us to see the evidence of His glorious presence among His people when they obey and when they trust Him. He also wants us to see the disastrous results of doubt and disobedience. Judgment. God's judgment. The children of Israel are revealed as helpless in their own strength. Only could they experience victory as they trusted and obeyed God. When they doubted, they experienced defeat. How does this connect to Jesus? Because Jesus told his friends on the road to Emmaus, you need to believe all of the scriptures and what they have said about me. And it says, beginning at Moses and all of the prophets. Samuel was a prophet and a judge. He began to explain to them all of the ways that they revealed him. Can we find Christ anywhere in this passage and in these series of events? Well, before we answer that question, we need to go back to the beginning. When God created the heavens and the earth and all things in it, visible and invisible, and placed creatures and animals upon His creation, He had a purpose behind it all. 
the purpose behind it was to glorify himself and to manifest himself to his creation. And we read how God came down and visited Adam and Eve, his first human creation. And how he walked with them and talked with them. And they knew that intimate fellowship with him. That describes God's plan. For he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, go throughout all of the earth. And that, I will remind you, came before they sinned. God's design was for his creatures to go throughout all of the earth with his presence so that his glory would go throughout all of the earth through his creation and with his creation. Sadly, you know the story how Adam and Eve sinned. They doubted God. They disobeyed. And big gates swung on little hinges. One small bite. God in his mercy promised a champion. I will send someone the seed of the woman who will crush the head of that serpent who tempted you into sin and disobedience. And as God began to further progressively reveal his plan of how he would fulfill that, he chose Abraham. And he told Abraham, through you and through your seed, I will reveal myself and manifest myself to all of creation, through all of the nations of the earth. These are the children of Abraham. The seed of Abraham. Part of that plan for God to restore His presence and His fellowship with mankind throughout all the earth included the children of Abraham inhabiting the promised land according to his promise and in the fashion in which he described it drive out all of the enemies and I will give that land to you and to your seed and you will then bless all of the nations of the earth from there they failed They failed. Did God have to go to plan B or plan C or plan D? No. God in His sovereignty knew what the children of Israel would do despite all of His warnings. And He used even their failures to bring about his plan he turned their failures for good in the process of their failure he revealed to them their helplessness without him that they indeed needed a savior they indeed needed a champion on their behalf for they had no chance against evil in their own strength And God used it in the children of Israel to prove to them their sinfulness 
and the necessity for them to trust God and His provision on their behalf? And throughout the ages, the history of judges reminds us the sinfulness of man and the necessity of a Savior. We find another example a few centuries beyond the book of Judges when another man leading the children of Israel by the name of King Saul when faced with the command of God to destroy an enemy the children of Amalek destroy them all Saul don't leave anything don't, don't even save any of the animals or the creatures or any of the children destroy everything and Saul had a better idea Saul's better idea was to save some of the sheep the best of the sheep the best of the cattle and we will use those for our sacrifices instead of our own sheep and cattle and oh yes he preserved alive the king of the Amalekites Agag by name God saw that and he sent Samuel to him and said Samuel he said Saul how did you do in your battle against Amalek oh we had great victory we destroyed all of the people but we did save the king and Samuel said to him Saul Saul what meaneth the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle in my ears what am I hearing you didn't obey God. You didn't believe Him. You didn't trust Him. And you saved out what you thought good that God called wicked. And because you, Saul, failed to believe and to trust God, you will no longer serve as the king of Israel. God will replace you with someone after His heart. Oh, we cannot take chances with God, my friends because big gates swing on little hinges both for good and for evil and God by preserving this record for us reminds us through warnings the example of the children of Israel how doubt brings about disobedience and disobedience brings defeat and it brings decline and it brings disaster and desertion from God uh, but it also shows us the reward of faith and obedience God's presence with us and it gives to us a picture of the Lord Jesus the necessity of a Savior and we find it finding its fulfillment in the birth and arrival of Christ the Savior the one who once again restored God's presence and glory on the earth in human flesh as he originally designed it in creation and all who come to faith and trust in Christ experience that experience the reality of that living presence within not without 
how does that correlate to you and me in our day and age? We can learn from the error of the children of Israel. And we can heed the warning and be reminded on the one hand of the disaster of doubt and disobedience Ah, but on the other we can also gain comfort and encouragement from the effects of belief and obedience God's presence God revealing himself to us and in our midst as collectively and individually How can the Spirit of God apply these truths in your life today? He can open your eyes to see that which is false and point out error and identify it to you. It looks so simple, so little, so insignificant. This this little thing won't hurt very much. Oh, yes it will. Yes, it will. God wants total, absolute faith and obedience. Not just part of the time or in some of the things. We can also see displayed for us the truth. The effects of faith and obedience. And the Spirit of God can take these truths and comfort us. Encourage us to believe and to trust. He can also convict us and point out to us our failure to trust Him and to believe Him. In the time of Jesus, some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Him and said, Show to us the works of God that we may do them. Do you know His answer? Very simple. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. That's the works of God. That's the thing He wants to see in your life and in my life. Have faith in God. And the Spirit of God can take these truths and He can make us uncomfortable and show to us those areas in our lives where we have failed to have faith in God. How will you respond? Well... You can deny it all and say, oh, that was an interesting story. You can delay and say, well, there were some things there that worthy of thought, but maybe tomorrow. I'll think about them on another day. You know, I've got a lot on my plate today. I think maybe I'll just kind of set it aside and, and another day I'll think about it. I would remind you, as I have reminded you every Sunday, tomorrow never comes. You only have today. You don't have tomorrow. You do have today. So how will you respond today? You can take comfort in the truth. And some of you have taken comfort in the truth. And you know the reality of God's presence as He promised and His faithfulness and His grace and His mercy in your lives. 
I don't know all of you, however. And I can't see down into the inner parts of your heart and your mind. I don't know what's there. It may be that you have never really trusted Christ. Oh, you've heard about Him. You like Him. You know about Christmas and Easter. And you try to do good things. But you've never trusted Him. Trust Him today. Don't put it off till tomorrow. Don't wait for a better day. There is no better day than today. Because a better day will never come. I pray that the Spirit of God will take these truths. Open your eyes to see them. To understand them. To see where you have failed. Like the children of Israel. In something you thought very insignificant. And yet God views it as very significant. And I pray that the Spirit of God will bring you to where you trust Him completely, wholly. That as Jesus responded to His accusers, the works of God, have faith in God. Trust His provision in Jesus Christ for people like you and like me. And find His faithfulness true in your life today. Let's close in prayer.